Welcome to episode 52 of Disabled and Proud. This week's episode is the one year anniversary special of the podcast. Can you believe it? It's been a year, guys, a whole year. I myself am in shock every time I say that. But I really want to thank you guys for listening and for viewing and for commenting and liking and sharing all of the support that I've received over the past year has been utterly phenomenal. And I have you guys to thank for that. So I will forever be eternally grateful. I also want to say thank you to every single guest who has given up their time to be on this podcast, who has trusted me with their stories and to those who I can now call really good friends. Without you guys, this would have been impossible. So a massive shout out to you guys. I'm really excited for you guys to hear this episode. There have been some moments that are away from the beginning and there are some moments that are away from maybe even last week. I cannot wait for you guys to hear this. So without further ado, welcome to episode 52 of Disabled and Proud, the one year anniversary special. Hi, I'm Brooke Melhouse. Welcome to Disabled and Proud, the podcast that does exactly what it says on the tin. Each week, the show highlights an awesome disabled guest speaking about their own disability, why they're proud to be disabled, and why they're proud to be themselves. Hopefully, having these conversations will make having these conversations a bit more normal. Yeah. And, like, having them between disabled people means that people will not, like, fear that conversation as much. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because people think that we don't want to talk about it. They're like, well, you can't because it's it's a bad thing. It's, It's a negative on the life. Whereas for me... Having my leg chopped off was like I was being reborn. Like I, I'd had an uh, injury years and years ago, and it was getting worse and worse and worse. I was bed bound, and then I had it off, and suddenly I could do everything like do yeah. normally. So, like for me, that was a huge relief having it off. But people get scared because obviously some people haven't got the. It's not that for them. It's traumatic, and then it's it's yeah, it's completely different. But people shouldn't be scared to talk about it because we like to talk about it. Really, it's, otherwise we feel like. People are kind of talking behind our backs. If you talk directly to us, it's fine. But you can't just, yeah, just ignore, ignore it, really. Yeah, because if you're ignoring it, you're almost like completely washing over like quite a big part of like an yeah. integral part of who you are. Yeah, it's massively who I am. Like it's changed me completely. Yeah. Um, but it's a good thing. It's purely in a good way. Yeah. So with that in mind, acquiring a disability, because I wouldn't say you, you weren't born disabled, you acquired your disability. Yeah. How has that um, affected like your career, how your like your life, how it's changed, all of that? It's kind of been thing. like the biggest roller coaster ever because I got injured in 2012. I was in the army um, and I was just on battle PT. I hadn't even got out of my second phase of training. I've done basic, I've done all my training to get ready to deploy to regiment. I was just wait, waiting for him to go and I fell in battle PT, which is a full kit and everything, fell over. I felt my leg, what I thought would happen, I thought my leg had broken. And I said to PTI, I said, I think I've done something. He's like, nah, it'll be all right, carry on. So I carried on because that's what you do. Yeah. Um, two weeks later, it was still black and swollen. And I was like, something's not right. So I went to the med centre. And at that point, I didn't have a scan or anything. The doctors never scanned me. He said, nah, nah you've got shin splints. And I was like, I've broken bones before. I've played rugby all my life. I'm fairly sure I've broken bone here. He's like, no, it shouldn't have been. Go to physio. And the physios were like, this doesn't make sense. What's going on? But in the army, you can't really, the doctors, they're right and everyone else is they wrong. They have the final word. Yeah. The physio is like, we need to get him scanned or something. He's like, no, no, treat him shins, So 
four months I was doing uh, strength building activities for shin splints. Um, and then my leg kind of blew up again after four months. And they said at that point, right, go for a scan and we'll, we'll have a look to see what's wrong. So I had an MRI scan and it showed I had a spiral fracture of my tibia. Um, like it was then five months previous. Oh my goodness. And the idea of, ideal thing for that is uh, lots of rest and recovery, but I've been doing strength building stuff on it. Um, so then just, yeah, kind of downward spiral from there. So they spent another year or so trying to fix me. Nothing worked. I then lost my job because by that point, everything anatomically was fine. All the scans were fine, but the pain was through the roof. Yeah. They kind of saying everything's fine. We don't know what's wrong with you. So they discharged me and said, look, get fit again, get strong and come back. Uh, they basically on my discharge notes, it said shin splints. Like um, they'd gone back to that, that thing again. They said, oh, it's probably shin splints. We need this guy to get strong again, then he can rejoin. So I was like, all right. I was angry by then. I started to get really yeah, angry Yeah, I was going to say. Um, and so I yeah, got discharged, had surgery where the doctor I had surgery with in Paul, he, um, he didn't know what was wrong either. He kind of said, there's a few things that we can do. Because he, he had a lot of um, ex-military guys come to him with leg problems. He was like, we did a periosteal strip, which is where they cut a hole down by my ankle, went up all the way up to my knee with like a wood planer. Um, but obviously for bones and just shave the bone down to try and get rid of any calcifications. And at the same operation, they then went through my foot and decompressed all the nerves. So basically like, you know, cocktail stick umbrellas, like going in the cocktail where they go in and open them. What happens in that surgery is they put a uh, thing all the way down through your nerves to the bottom by your toes, open the umbrella up, drag everything out. So completely like clear nerves. The operation was pretty, pretty, yeah, decent operation that. Took about a year to recover from that, from the pain of the operation. Okay, the nerves to settle down. It turns out I didn't do anything. Um, so a year after, I kind of got back to normal pain rather than operation pain. Um, just trying to get fit again. So I was doing weighted runs. I was doing just as much as I could to get fit. And every like six months or so, my leg would blow up again and I have to stop. And then it went over three months, then two months, then a month, then a couple of weeks. And kind of six years down the line, I was bed bound, so I couldn't do anything. And then, so yeah, lost my job. I tried different jobs in between. So I did gardening for a bit because the idea was keep it moving. Yeah. That didn't work. I then went and worked inside in just a normal shop and sat down for a long time. That didn't work. So I sat down for too long. Nothing was stopping the pain. It was always like 24 7, like huge pain. And then randomly moved house and I saw a new GP. And the GP said, You've got complex regional pain syndrome. I was like, what's complex use of pain syndrome? He said, basically, it's my claim to fame is there's a pain index called the McGill pain index. And see, CRPS is the highest pain thing that doctors know of. There's nothing worse than it. Like amputations blow it and cancer blow it and all that and childbirth and everything. And yeah, CRPS is like number 45 out of 50 on the pain scale. He said like this happened on initial injury. So when I initially got injured, went down on battle PT, I got CRPS instantly, but they just never saw it because I never had a scan. I never went to the pain doctors. I never had, saw a pain specialist. The doctors didn't know what they were looking for, um, didn't see it, and basically did everything wrong and just made it a lot worse than if I'd been treated properly. Yeah. It's When I heard that, I was kind of my lowest. Like I was just angry, like the, the world hated me, kind of because I'd only ever wanted to be in the army. That was like everything for me. Yeah. Um, I'd lost that. Um, then when I heard that, it was like, all right, well, where do I go from here? And he was like, well, there's lots of things you can do. 
but generally you need to do them within six months of initial injury. And I was now six years down the line. So yeah. I had injections. Like, yeah, it was just, that yeah. That just kind of sailed at that point. I can now, now I can say it is what it is. At the time, like, yeah, it was just, yeah, I was just an angry person just because yeah. of everything that happened. And yeah, so we tried the injections into the back where they put like an anesthetic into your back and it goes down. That's why like you have to be laid on the table under an x-ray because when the needle goes in, the doctor needs to see it when it's inside the skin because it's so close to the spinal cord. If he nicks the spinal cord, that's yeah, it. that's it. Um, so he has to do that and it goes down and, and sorts all that out. And then medication, I just was on the worst medication. Like I was just dribbling 24-7. It was horrific. But I'd go shopping in the morning. I'd then... Um, Beth, my missus, I'd say, look, um, we need to go to Tesco in the evening. She's like, no, you went this morning after you dropped me off at work. I was like, what? I had no recollection of actually going shopping. No. These tablets I was on were so bad. Just so um, strong that it was sending you to the moon and back. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, did, did kind of a year of all the medication they could have given me and all the like, physio and everything. Nothing was working, getting worse. I was yeah, just in bed all the time, just playing Call of Duty. I'm really good at Call of Duty now. Um, <laughs> so I played that a lot. And yeah, just at the end of the day, I said, look, can you just chop it off? And the doctor was like, it's a pain, it's a pain, like nerve condition. It might spread. And I was like, can I just talk to, talk to a surgeon? And he put me in contact with Alex Crick, who she is based out of Salisbury. And she did about 40% of all the amputations out of Afghanistan. And she knows her stuff and she's done a lot with ex-military guys. And she said, I went there, I, I wrote like two page sheet of why I wanted it and why I think I'd be a good, like, because I did loads of research, spoke to guys who'd had it off because of the same thing I had. And I went there with two sheets of paper. Like I, I read everything to her. I was like, this is what I think. This is the research I've done into it. And she's like, you need to brawl that. Just know, just seeing you, I can tell that you'd be a perfect candidate for it. And I was like, what? She's like, yeah, yeah, we'll chop it off. I was like, winner. Amazing. So you yeah, then spent... Yeah. Like you just written like two pages of something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, but nothing. And I'm not the best writer either. So I'm like... <laughs> but yeah. Um, <laughs> The weirdest thing is I walked in to get my own leg amputated. So I walked into the hospital, pushing a wheelchair with the stump board on it ready to have my leg amputated. Um, yeah, walking in there, I was fine. Like literally, I was excited. And then you went under the knife. Um, two hours later, woke up and I've not had any pain since. I used to refer to myself as being chronically ill before I realised that I was also disabled. But now I definitely refer to myself as disabled and chronically ill. Wow, that's quite a that's quite a lot to take on as a person to to give yourself the label of disabled and chronically ill. How have you like come to that decision to use both, and how do you intertwine them if if you do? Well. Um, I originally, I mean, I've called myself chronically ill for many years because um, I have been symptomatic since I was about 10 years old. And then by the, by the time I had years of it, I just realised that, you know, I was chronically ill. Um, at the time, I didn't have a proper diagnosis and I kind of thought in my naive way that it would go away. Um, and then once I got my diagnosis, I didn't get my diagnosis until I was 23 years old. Um, I realized that it was not going to go away and it was genetic and having the diagnosis really gave me some kind of validity to my symptoms. And I also realized quite a lot of things that I thought everyone experienced. I thought it was really normal to hate standing up. I thought it was really normal for everyone to be in pain and exhausted when they stood up um, and just to be 
really tired all the time because you know it's in in society people are like oh I'm so tired I'm really tired um and everyone's like, always on the go as well so at what point is like my tired and your version of tired two very different things exactly so I just sort of put a lot of things down to like normal and everyone experiences it I'm just I just struggle more than everyone um, and then I realized that that's not true um and also even when I got my diagnosis, I still just called myself chronically ill because mm-hmm. I didn't think I was quote unquote disabled enough. I didn't think I was bad enough, ill enough to be called disabled. Oh my, no, I'm not disabled. I'm not in a wheelchair. I also thought, you know, disabled equals wheelchair. Um, and, you know, so many people have it worse. I can do things. I was at university at the time. I you know do sports. Um, and then after a little bit longer in the sort of, chronically ill and disabled space online like I met met a lot of friends and followed people who were also chronically ill and disabled and realizing that they identify as disabled and I'm very much like them and what disabled actually means I was like no I actually I am disabled I can call myself disabled yeah um and I did a lot of research and it took a lot of time even mentally to come to to that because you know in society we see disabled as this bad thing yeah um, so very, very then I realized I realized that it's not a bad thing you can have you know it's not this thing that's a gatekeeping club either you can have people lots of different experiences of disability um and that I qualified so now I I tend to just say disabled but I am also chronically ill you know so so it's, it is both and I think what you say about you know, using the word disabled is, is so, it's so true because I think for a long, long time, and I've said this before, and I know I'll say it again, is that for a very, very long time, far too long, is that society has equated disabled with inadequate. And because, you know, for whatever reason, if you acquire your disability or if you're born disabled, using the word disabled suddenly deemed you as an inadequate And it's now actually the reason that I've called the podcast Disabled and Proud is to reclaim that power of the word disability, because actually disabled doesn't mean inadequate at all. It's almost just signposting you to know that actually this body is not the same as everybody else's, but that doesn't mean it's any less worthy. Yeah, exactly. It's just like, it's a label, like you label height, you label hair colour. It's a similar label, obviously different things, you know, if you've got paler skin you might need a bit more sun cream it's the same thing you know if you're disabled you might need certain different things than able-bodied or non-disabled people but it's it's not inherently bad and it doesn't make you any less adequate as you say disability is not here to entertain you like (laughs) exactly like this is literally giving me goosebumps because that's exactly what it is. There was no tragic story. Also, it's a hell of an intrusive question. Like, had something had happened, I'm not necessarily sure I would speak to a random stranger about it. But it's because it's so intrusive as well. And it's also, like like you said, it can be seen as a form of entertainment. And disability is not for entertainment purposes. Like, my body is not here to entertain you or make you feel better about your own body. <laughs> no, and I think, honestly that is like a real big player in it because I think the question feeds from a place of fear. I think people see people that look visibly different and they're like, Oh my gosh, how did this person, how did this happen to this person? How can I avoid it happening to me? And that speaks to a lot of the negative beliefs about disability in general and how like disability is like this, it's worse than death. And like all of these 
really negative viewpoints. And I'm just like, how do we fix that? Because until we take the fear out of disability, that question is not going away. If you look at disability now, the whole demographic, if you like, um, of disabled people, whether it's whether it's acquired or 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 um, inherited, yeah. Um, you look at it now to, compared to you know pre twenty twelve. It's hot and cold. It's black and white, isn't it? So it's um, so when I was told that you know your arm and shoulder's gone, that it's never coming back. It was the it was the forward thought of what the hell am I going to do now? Like, yeah. who hires disabled people? Who, who? well, am I going to stay in the army? You know, because I was, I, was, I was in for the long haul. And, um, but after I looked around the room and everyone was obviously quite somber and upset, obviously, I just pulled the nurse and pulled the nurse's gown and she came over and I said, um, I said, is the plumbing still attached and working? Like verbatim. <laughs> And she sort of laughed and it got a few laughs and she went, that's fine. I mean, you've got a catheter in, but that's fine. Um, and I went, you know what? Nothing else really matters to see. I said, there's people worse off than me. I'll get over this. I don't live with cancer. I don't, I don't live in a war-torn country. I'm certainly yeah. not at war um, in, in a country. No one's invading my country. I mean, that's more relevant now, but you, you think of all the, all the, the bad things that go on in life. I've just lost my arm and shoulder. Yes, that's really bad, but we can adapt and overcome to that. So yeah, in the grand scheme of things, missing your arm and shoulder is not like you know the be all or. I mean, I mean, it was worst it get for me. I can't clap. There's <laughs> there's bigger problems to have in there. So um, um, I laugh and joke about it all the time. Sorry, yeah, but. I've also said the exact same thing on an interview before. Why I'm finding it so funny. I mean, people go, "Yeah, you can clap your chest and your tummy, your legs." That's not clapping as I wish. Do you know what I mean? So, but um, looking back on that as well now, like that's the moment I kind of accepted my situation for what it was. Like, mm-hmm. I'm going to be a man with one arm for the rest of my life. Like, no matter how advanced medical science gets. Yeah. We're not nukes, are we? Our arms don't grow back, you know, no. or, or or anything. So it's it's kind of like that is what it is. That's a situation. But rather than focus on what what I can't do, what can I do? Um, I was right hand dominant, so I was like, well, well I just have to learn to write again then. And it's quite funny. Mum went out and got me a. Um, I found it the other day. I was having a dig out of my flat actually, an early uh, an early learning writing book. Um, it's aged five to six years when mum went and got it i got like a weekend release from from my ward yeah. um i went with i went to the town with her i couldn't get in because i was in an electric wheelchair um i couldn't get through the door um it weren't wide enough mm-hmm. and um so mum walked in she went, you've got any um like learning write writing books though right um, learn to write books and the guy goes yeah what age please she went 23 yeah <laughs> And look on his face. What? And I was waving. No, it's me. Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah. And but hospital was a. I set my first ever goal in hospital. Uh-huh. Um, they'd. Um, I won't go into the ins and outs of it, but they wheeled me into the toilet after having a procedure done. Um, I wasn't passing anything, so they said, "When you're finished, pull the orange cord, and somebody will come and." 
sort you out. Um, And um, I went, no. I said, I'm not having that. Like, Do you want a bit of dignity? A bit of dignity. I'm trying to pick my words here, but like, um, if, if, if I can't clean myself up and I have the ability to be able to do so, I need to have a word with myself. And I said, I need my independence back. I don't want anyone doing anything for me. And that's not a pride thing. That's not me uh, refusing help at all. But if I've got the ability to be able to do something, then I'm going to do it. Um, So, and that was it. What do we need? And and there's so much involved that you don't even think about with independence. Uh I just thought, well, I'm in the perfect place to start hospital. Visiting hours are only sort of three hours a day. I've got all of the rest of that time outside of those visiting hours. I've got, I can either watch whatever nonsense is on TV in the daytime. I think it was Jeremy Kyle was all the rage at the time. Or I can start adapting to this new way of life. I was right-hand dominant. So, um, and I think with left and right-handed, you're born left and right-handed, aren't you? So, so I just used to sit in this book, write my name. I start with the alphabet. So I write like half the alphabet, like really badly. <laughs> Um, and once I perfected that, I'd write the other half and then I'd write the whole half in one go. And it's just like little goals. Yeah. But I, I never really, I, I never realised really, that's really bad English, isn't it? I, I never really realised really. Um, <laughs> I never, I, I never quite understood and took, uh, took on board how, and no one would, but how fundamentally life-changing goal setting would become later on in life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. how breaking down those goals into small achievable chunks makes the bigger ones achievable but we moved didn't we <laughs> I acquired my disability 10 years ago mm-hmm. and when I acquired it I had no knowledge of the disabled community um, I'm pretty sure I was stuck with a lot of ableism due to lack of knowledge. So when I when I acquired my disability, I think I was I identified with how society perceives disability. Yeah. And and so when I started to overcome things like health complications, weight issues, things that, you know, frankly, my physicians and therapists couldn't guide me into. Yeah. That's where the button I really came. Because it was like, okay, I am disabled, but I'm only disabled due to your perception of what disability is. Yeah. But not really means that because once I realized I was creating these awe moments for so many people, I was changing the paradigm of what people saw as disability. And so that's where it's like, yeah, I'm disabled. You know, I'm I'm on, on what you think disabled is. Yeah, but not really. It's giving you the ability to know that I'm more than your own perception. I love that because it's so true that you need to own your own disability, and that is like a huge journey for everyone. Not everybody immediately accepts their disability, whether you acquire it or you're born disabled. It's it's not like a straight path for everyone. But I love that you've taken something that is so about ownership and put your own spin on it, where you're like, actually whilst I have got a disability and I'm completely accepting of that, it's not me that's disabled. It's the society around me that perpetuates that narrative. And I love that so much. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I appreciate it. I, I, you know, I I was more defeated when I lived my life 
based on other people's perceptions. And like, that's a very good spin on it because people need to realize that actually society is one of the most damning experiences as a disabled person. It's never necessarily the disability that's the difficulty it's the society that that's on top of it which is the difficulty so I think that's a really brilliant way of like looking at it and and having a non-for-profit that focuses on that I think is wonderful because so many people can benefit from that yeah absolutely and it keeps people you know when people ask me about the name it allows me to give them the 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 definition but when you look at the individuals we work with you see that everyone is embodying their own identity. No one is living the identity that is based on a lens that you see in the in the medical books. Yeah. You know, it is it is taking it into a different field. And like for me, I believe I'm free. I'm not I'm not bounded by my limitations. I'm very free mentally and physically. And, you know, um, I I want other people to see that ability, you know, yeah. and, and know how powerful they are, you know, from their mind and allow their mind to carry them in whatever way they want in life. I always I, I tell people I was disabled mentally before I ever became disabled physically. Uh-huh. And because of that, it allows me to know society has so much work to do on the judgment of disabled bodies mm-hmm. when they lack the knowledge of you know, just even how to live life, you know, with gratitude. I feel like people with disabilities, you know, we, we're once we get past that, that hump, we become grateful. We're grateful for life. We're grateful for the circumstances. We're even grateful that we get to see how people view others that are different than them. You know, like to have that ability and awareness because your body looks different physically like, and people judge you from that, like people will put limitations on you for that. So I think like my gratitude is being aware of how society itself looks at this culture that is, you know, one of the largest groups in the world when it comes from, you know, disability and minority and diversity and everything else. So, yeah. (laughs) I remember saying to a guy once, um, he said something like, you know, what's what's wrong with you or the usual charming question. And I was just like, oh, nothing. I'm disabled. And he was like, oh, I think you're definitely more abled than disabled. And I'm like, yeah, I'm really not. <laughs> like, clearly. Like, what are you talking about? And I oh, think it's people. it's so annoying. I think they just think it's, you know, the equivalent to saying, I don't know, oh, I'm a shithead. And they go, oh, no, you're not. You know, and, and it's like, yeah, no, it's not it's not the equivalent. Like, it's just that's how I identify. That's, that's who I am. And that's yeah. fine. Yeah, exactly. And it's and it's not like society. And I've said it before and I'll say it again. And I've said it multiple times in this podcast. But society in general has seemed to equate disability with an adequacy. So mm. as soon as you say disabled or disability, people are like, oh. <gasps> And they almost don't know how to take it. And I'm like, no, 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 I'm going to say this word. I'm going to use this word because it accurately describes exactly what I need it to. Mm. And also it's not a bad word. Like you shouldn't be fearing it. Mm. And I think it's frustrating because they see that, you know, as you say, like inadequacy. Um, And that's always directed towards our broken, you know, sick bodies, as opposed to seeing, 
you know, the attitudes, the access barriers, et cetera, et cetera, that, you know, can be changed. And if Uh more people knew about it and more people, you know, went into a restaurant and questioned why they don't have, you know, disabled toilets or brow menus or whatever it is. But instead, people just sort of hear disabled, think, oh, you know, always sit through the medical, feel sorry for you because, you know, it can't be fixed. And it's like, ah, there's so much that can be fixed. Um, But you just don't see it. All of the stuff I had kind of internalised over the years, like when people would come up to me and say, what have you done? And I would just answer them and tell my whole medical history because I felt I had to. And I remember the first time, one of the first things I wrote about to do with disability on my Instagram was that, not liking those questions. And I was so nervous posting it because I was so used to, when I would say to people that I didn't like them, people would say things like, oh, but people are only, you know, being nice. And, yes. You know, yeah. they don't mean any harm and all of that. And I would be put back in my box. Go, okay. Yeah. So to write this post and then have loads of people comment and being like, oh, I hate it too. It makes me feel this, this and this. It was like, oh my God, this is just so validating. And yeah, it just changed everything. And I learned, um, you know, about the social model of disability and learning about different models of disability. Yeah. Again, was able to sort of look back at like, 30 odd years of my life and start unpicking it all and just seeing it through a different like seeing myself through a different lens seeing disability yeah. through a different lens um and it's like an ongoing process because you know I didn't discover all this stuff till I was like 37 um mm-hmm. so I spent so many years just having all of this internalized ableism and never questioning it because I just thought that's how it was so it's yeah, yeah the last sort of four years especially have just been yeah amazing and what I love about that is that you're not you're not shying away from the fact that there was internalized ableism in your life because mm. I think a lot of people are almost like you know who talk in the disabled community. Some people are like you know internalized ableism it exists, but like oh, I've never had it. And then you're like at some point everybody has had some form of internalized ableism, whether you're conscious of it or not. You have, and that's nobody's fault. It's the way that society has like put us in like a little corner and that's what society has said and it's not kind of until you you almost break out of that and you almost do like your own research or you look into it a bit more that you realize actually how heavily ableist society is and it's actually mm. quite scary <laughs> oh it's it's everywhere like ableism and eugenics and yeah. it's stuff that people you know ableism most people haven't heard of eugenics people seem to think is a thing of the past yeah um whereas when we look at you know the last um couple of years with the pandemic and we look at the treatment of disabled people we look at things like this is all getting a bit bleak now but you know like forced um dnrs and yeah all of that stuff um you know, like I'm at the point where I was so burnt out from spending a year sort of shouting about how disproportionately it was affecting disabled people and how many disabled people were dying and people not giving a shit. And it was yeah. like, oh, OK, like, um, you know, just that apathy of me doesn't really affect me. Yeah. Um, and you're right, you know, everybody everybody is ableist you cannot live in this society you know even within our school systems you know we reward good health when we look at work you know we reward good health and if you're somebody who has to have a lot of time off you're penalized if you're somebody who can't work you're judged you're offered bare minimum support you know it's just ingrained in us that being disabled is terrible and sad because we all have some level of knowledge of how disabled people are treated 
um, and the lack of support that disabled people get. And, you know, it goes back to kind of the industrial revolution times and factories being brought in and suddenly, you know, there wasn't any work for a disabled person and the workers wanted to make sure that, you know, everybody kept working. So that's why the social security benefits have always been so appallingly terrible because we don't want to make that look like a cushy deal. It's, you know, it's, yeah, you kind of can't not be ableist and it's all about kind of just challenging it. Like I still am so like my first reaction, like my first thought sometimes I'm like, Oh my God, Nina, what that would get you cancelled. And <laughs> you know, and it's like the second thought that counts because yeah. the first thought is the one that we're all brought up with. It's the one that, you know, we just have to undo. And it's the second thought that comes in and you replace it and go, well, no, that's not actually true. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's just about recognizing that. And I think with disability and with ableism, especially people just, it's hard because people like to close their eyes because they don't like to see the problems mm-hmm. and people like to turn a blind eye to it. Because as soon as you point out something is ableist, well, there's a massive barrier to entry. It's almost like, I'm not a bad person though. I, I'm like, <laughs> I'm, I'm not, I'm not a bad person for, for doing this. Like, Oh, because I didn't think about access. I'm not a bad person. Like, mm my architect should have thought about that. Well, no, no, like Mm. stop chatting shit. It's rubbish. You're all ableist, accept Mm. it. But like, as soon as you accept it, you can like learn from it. So like accept it and now learn. (laughs) I think TikTok has just exploded. And I think what the platform can do is incredible, but I'm always intrigued to know how people like first think about when they're first going to post and how it exploded and how it worked for them. It it was um, such a, spontaneous thing but I'd, I'd been to um the russell howard show um in september and yeah. a clip of me at that show went viral with a disabled comedian who asked me what my favorite disability was so <laughs> naturally i hold up my cane uh-huh. um and everyone loves that and someone obviously clipped that and it went viral and naturally there were lots of questions in that comment section asking yeah. like why is the blind guy wearing sunglasses? Why is he in the front row? All these kind of things. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I was like, oh, okay, let's let's answer some of these in a video. And do you know what? The first, the first <laughs> I had a few takes of this video that I was trying to make. And the first one was really gun ho and calling everyone idiots. Like, what a stupid question? <laughs> and um, my girlfriend had to be like, I reckon you should maybe like tone it down a little bit. It's <laughs> a really good decision. <laughs> um, and that video ended up getting loads of traction, doing really well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just thought, okay, let's see where it goes. And for some reason it got, got traction, my page and we're here, you know, sitting pretty. Yeah, it does. And I think it's amazing, isn't it? Because I remember doing a video, not like dissimilar to that, where I was, I was actually calling out the government and actually like, it was, it was quite strong. And then afterwards yeah. I was like, oh, like that was a really angry disabled post. Like, <laughs> And it's because I think you're so like in your mind and like in your mind, in my mind, like when you say something about disability, it's so obvious because it's our lived experience and it might not be obvious to like your average show blogs because they, it's not something they think about and it's not their like reality. And so when I think about these things, I'm like, oh, like maybe, maybe I do need to tone it down and maybe I do need to take a step back. (laughs) So it's really hard though, because like, Obviously, our day-to-day experience, I feel like a lot of people say like, oh, you're such an inspiration for sharing your story. And for me, it's just like, well, I'm just giving out information. It's not, it doesn't take me much effort to do. I don't find myself particularly inspirational. But I think 
the reason why people like my content is because for the longest time I was really polite and I was answering questions as if you know the person had never as if they were an alien and didn't know what a blind person was and I've only had a couple of videos where I have been a bit snappy or a bit forceful and actually I slightly regret them now because of the Uh point you've just said that you know people just don't know they're asking questions most of the time because they just want to find out not because they're you know trying to take the mic I didn't know what health and safety was so I did I just wound everybody up and I did everything dangerously so um I just made it worse for everybody at school to be fair but um yeah and because I was always a lot of the kids like in my school if they were in wheelchairs they also had a manual wheelchair yeah whereas I always had electric wheelchairs so um (laughs) yeah I'd always be like speeding really fast down the corridors but I was always sensible as in if there's a crowd I'd go at like speed three and, and the guys in electric workers know what I mean. And then if there's not, it, you know, everybody's in class and you've just popped to the loo or whatever and there's nobody there, you vomit down the longest corridor at full <laughs> speed and then, you know, try and like break up pull the wheelie at the end and you sort of forget that there's probably a teacher walking behind you and shouting at you but you know things like that but yeah health and safety wheelchair wise no didn't know what that was and I constantly clap I do it now as an adult I clash into doors with my wheelchair yeah and that used to just scare everybody so no I don't know what I don't know what that is I don't know what health and safety is with wheelchairs (laughs) I love that so much I was in hospital for a while and I thought I need to find something else to do so I set up an online store selling gifts and gadgets because that was kind of as the internet was starting to progress in I was like in my early 20s and there was more like online stores popping up and I'd been doing that for about eight eight to twelve months I would have thought looking back and then I went to a trade fair and I was walking around this trade fair and there was a stand selling and everyone laughed with this vibrating rubber ducks that were <laughs> a sex tie but they because of this show, they could get away with it. And they're, they're a brand called I Rub My Ducky. They're still in existence. They're an American company. And they're a vibrating rubber duck. I usually have one on the shelf. I do have one on the shelf behind me, actually. Oh, my God. It's a prime version. Unreal. And so, obviously, it's a very discreet vibrator. And when I was talking to the people on the stand, and they were saying, oh, we have other stuff, but we can't show it on the main stand. Would you like to come and have a look? And there was load of vibrators and some other sex ties on the stand. I thought, that's brilliant. I, I wouldn't mind doing that. Yeah. And that was where my story, like the sex tie industry started. So I started a store then. So that would have been 2005, four or five. Super early uh, doors, really, when it comes yeah, to like e-commerce. The, yeah. And so I started doing that and it became very apparent over the first four to five years trading was a lot of the sex toys weren't accessible for mm-hmm. people with dexterity issues. And I was always looking for something that could help people with disabilities. So yeah. I then started concentrating on looking for products that were what I deemed accessible. And I spent a lot of time researching products, looking at them, getting them in, seeing how I like, a lot of people just think it's to do with the buttons, but for me, it isn't. It can be like the packaging, the instructions, the textures, the colours. There's a lot, You've got to look at so many. Even the smells. There's a lot of people who don't like the smell of certain materials. Yeah. But I spent my time looking at things like that, and then the pandemic hit, and which was brilliant for 
business because everyone was staying at home. But everyone was bored and needed a vibrator. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I was thinking, I'm getting a bit bored though. Mm-hmm. Um, which was weird. I was busy, but I was getting, I needed, but I, I had a niche that I needed to scratch. It was like there was something I needed to do. So I um, started some work with a UK charity called Enhance the UK, who do about sex and disability. Mm-hmm. And then I decided to qualify as a sex educator as well. Mm-hmm. And then with that, I've been doing work with sex education companies, but I've also then decided in one way, which is sad, I closed my store because I thought I want to explore more things. And I, I think working with bigger companies, I can have a bigger impact. So I now work with sex toy companies looking at how to make their products accessible and how we can talk to more people in the disabled community. Because for me, sex and disability is a massive taboo. Yeah, you know, I, I speak to so many people. I would from the ages of twenty right up to seventy who have had no sex education, and that could be because sex education is crap in schools, in mainstream schools anyway. Um, but it's even in a lot of SEN schools, it's just non-existent. It can be very easily swept under the rug. The reality of like the medical model of disability, for example, like can be so easily swept under the carpet because, you know, we're England and we have the NHS and the NHS is wonderful. And I'm not saying that the NHS isn't wonderful. It is. And we're so lucky to have it. However, there are massive, massive flaws in the system, huge, huge flaws in the system, especially when it comes to disabled people. And that's physical, that's intellectual, that it's, it's everything that it comes with it. There's so little knowledge about disability that even the specialists are being taught by the disabled people. If you Google disabled founders in the UK, you're going to come up with individual people. That's fantastic. There's no data on it. There's no data on anything like this because it's just not been done because people don't realize how many disabled people there are in the UK. And Mm -hmm. a massive driving factor is is the lack of representation. Less than 2% of MPs are disabled, but over 20% of the population is disabled. And there's so much conversation about you know, making sure parliament is equal men and women and making sure there's representation of the BAME community and sexuality and gender. But where's disability in that conversation as well? It's been very left behind. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I think what you say just then is that less than 2% of MPs are disabled. And yet mm. these are the people who are creating policy. These are the people yeah. who, you know, by and rights are dictating the way that the country goes and when you've got 20 percent of a population being represented by two percent of the people who are who yeah. are um like navigating the ship as such like no wonder disabled people are left on the back benches but yeah. and and then you know I, I don't feel awful saying that either because mm. it, it, that's factual that's not me picking out like a random piece of information like it's factual that disabled people are left behind on a daily basis yeah. especially when it comes to accessibility especially when it comes to representation and like to hear the numbers, it's mm. it's almost scary because yeah. you think 2% of MPs, that is like nothing. That's absolute yeah. pittance. I know. And the, the thing with that kind of statistic as well is, you know, it is a starting point and it's great. But also those individuals don't want to be pigeonholed as just talking yeah. about disability because they are disabled and that, you know, they have to permanently tout the flag and and wave it about and say have you thought about disability because those individuals are in that role for a reason because they are talented and they've they've worked there and they've been chosen by their popular their their populace in their communities that it's not their job 
to just be talking about disability just because they are disabled. Yeah, it, it doesn't work like that. They should be able to, but those individuals are having to carry the wagon for us because there's nobody else to do it. And I'll give you a kind of shocking fact is that the House of Commons is so inaccessible that we could never have a front bench MP that was disabled or had a mobility issue because it's not accessible. So if you are successful in becoming a member of parliament and you identify as being disabled, you can only be a backbencher because you cannot physically get yourself to the to to stand and talk, which is just shocking. You can never be speaker of the house. You can never get yourself to the dispatch box. It it's shocking. And like if you put into sort of statistical, I always like to put things in statistics to kind of drive home how shocking it is. There are currently eight members of parliament that we know of that have declared they identify as disabled. There could be more that haven't said so, but we are aware of eight. There should be 131 if it was equally representative. If the Houses of Commons as an organisation, as a building is already struggling with its accessibility, you ask anybody that's ever been there, it's a nightmare. How, how is it going to accommodate 131 disabled members of parliament? It's, it's not going to be able to. But this is the thing is that my massive kind of slogan line that I always use is that we should be being proactive, not reactive. Yeah. We shouldn't be waiting. We should just be doing it and sitting there thinking, OK, in 100 years time, hopefully we will be more electively representative. What can yeah. we do now? It's utilize the restoration and renewal program to make it more accessible. But it's not happening because no one's thinking about it, which is just when you say it like that, it's shocking. Currently, we can't have a prime minister that has a physical impairment because the dispatch box is inaccessible. <laughs> yeah. Like I'm I laughing know. because if I don't laugh, I might cry because yeah. like that is just, it's, um, it's genuinely unbelievable, but also on the flip side, it's not unbelievable either. No, it's like, not. Yeah. So like, I can believe I have no issues and like I've seen it. I can believe it. That's the reality of disabled politics in Britain. Do you have a piece of advice for either the younger version of yourself or a person with the same disability as you? Now, most people tend to actually answer both because they're two different, like they're two different questions. So Mm -hmm. like, feel free to answer both because I'm intrigued by both of the answers. (laughs) Well, I would say, yeah, kind of this piece of advice kind of covers both, but I'll say to my younger self, I think, um, and this is something that I'm really starting to regret as I get to my 30s. And it's like, stop trying to make people feel comfortable. That is my number one, like, worst trait. But I, I don't think it's my fault either because mm-hmm. people, you know, I'm, I'm guessing you might get this a lot as well, where people just don't know what to do around you. So they're, like, flailing and, and you know, like, they're being really awkward. So... I would use like 120% energy to like make them feel comfortable, prove that I'm A-OK and I'm happy and I'm fine. But actually like, so what if I'm having a bad day and they see that a disabled person's just average? Like you don't have to be exceptional. This exactly. Oh my goodness. This exactly. That's just so bang on. Thank you. I mean, I just wish I could tell myself that because... It got to the point when it was just, I think it was the start of lockdown, when we weren't going out anymore, obviously, yeah. and we were like at home. 
And I genuinely went down into a slump and I realised that I'd got like, go, 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 go for years and like perform to everybody every day to show that I'm, I'm doing great and I'm doing all these amazing things. And I could just be at home and not do that anymore. And I was like, God, the, I need to stop using all this mental energy on stuff that like, who cares if the taxi driver feels sorry for me? Does it matter? Does it actually matter? And it's that's so, so bang on because I think a lot of disabled people feel the need to perform yeah. in terms of wanting the rest of the world to see that they're doing great things or that they're actually like quote unquote fine when actually mm. it might be a bloody awful day. Mm. And the idea that, I think the idea of pity with being disabled is that you never want to look at someone and then see you having a bad day yeah. and automatically go, it's because they're disabled. Exactly. Being like, actually, it's just a bit of a shit day. Yeah. Like, I could be having a bad air day. I could be having an argument with someone. I could be, you know, there's so many things that could be impacting my day. But I wasn't even allowing those things to be processed in my brain because I'm not allowed to have a bad day because I'm showing everyone that I am fine. And it's an absolute, like, mind f like you can't so you said you could swear on it i feel a bit annoyed um yeah so that's what i would say i think disabled people are the most creative people in the world i think that there's so much creativity and problem solving and speculation required in like finding what works for your body and especially with the added challenges of being a disabled person and disabled people in societies that aren't necessarily built for disabled people. So I think that that mentality actually equips disabled people to be much better at this kind of like creative alternative career path. And I think it frees disabled people are are more free in that way. Thanks for listening to this episode of Disabled and Proud. If you've enjoyed the show, then please give it some love by leaving us a five-star review wherever you download your podcasts. It really helps us to reach more and more people each week. Plus, if you've got a particular highlight, then I'd absolutely love to hear it. Tag me on your Insta stories at Disabled and Proud Podcast.